Welcome to Voices from the Valley, a podcast of the Community Foundation for the Fox Valley Region. I'm Amy Spreeman. And I'm Carolyn DeRosier. We're starting this episode off by asking our listeners to imagine. Imagine for a moment that you and your family are starting life over in a new country where everything from the education to the language to the food and the people are different. In addition to the trauma of suddenly being uprooted from everything you know, you now have to find a way for you, your spouse, your children to make a life in this new reality. In this episode, we're going to continue our conversation about the challenges of resettling here in the Fox Valley from other countries, and we're referencing our newest neighbors coming here from Afghanistan and starting a new life. In our last episode, we talked with Tammy McLaughlin from World Relief Fox Valley, and we asked her, how do we as a community try to understand what they are going through? Is the Fox Valley welcoming, or do we unintentionally create challenges for our new neighbors? And we got to thinking about some of these challenges and what we've learned from the past. Well, to find out, we wanted to look back at the interesting parallels between this recent wave of Afghan newcomers and Hmong refugees coming to our community starting 40 years ago. So we invited some folks to share with us about their experience and expertise. I had a chance to sit down with Shang Li Yang, founder and executive director for Us to Behavioral Healthcare, a nonprofit here in the Valley. Shang is a first-generation Hmong immigrant who arrived in the U.S. as a refugee at a young age and has remained in Wisconsin since. And joining us at the table for this conversation was Paja Yang, our colleague here at the Community Foundation, who joined us earlier this year as our Basic Needs Giving Partnership intern and who was recently named a Fox City's Future 15. We are super proud of her. Paja and her family came from Thailand and resettled in Appleton when she was young. Here's what we talked about. Well, welcome, Shang and Paja, to this conversation. Um, I'm so grateful for both of you for the time that you're going to share with us. And I would love if you could both introduce yourselves and just um, say a little bit about yourself. Shang, we'll start with you. Hello, everyone. Um, I'm Shang. I am the founder and executive director for OST Behavior Healthcare. We are located um, here in Appleton, um, fairly new nonprofit that started about two and a half years ago. Wonderful. Paja? Hi, everyone. My name is Paja Yang. I'm the Hmong Family Outreach Specialist with the Appleton Public Library. I'm also an intern here at the Community Foundation. In my role at the library, I work primarily with Hmong families, get them connected to library services and community resources. My role is really to introduce early literacy to Hmong caregivers so that they can practice reading, writing, singing, talking, and playing together and build their essential early literacy skills. That's so cool. Well, Shang, I want to start with you uh, because you work so closely with the Hmong community in the Fox Valley. When we look at the history of how the Hmong people came to the United States in the 1960s, they were fleeing persecution when communist troops took over Laos, uh, much like Afghani families are fleeing the situation in Afghanistan today. Was your family part of that first wave to come to the United States? Um, No, unfortunately, my family was not, Carolyn. Uh, We actually didn't come to the United States until 1988. So my family, uh, my parents are actually, you know, born and raised in Laos. I was born in the refugee camps of Bangvinai, Thailand. 
we were in the we were actually left in Laos for quite some time um, before being able to cross over to um, Thailand. And then we were in the refugee camps for about more. My family was in the refugee camps for about five or six years. One thing to know about the refugee camps too, or individuals who are born in refugee camps, is that they are considered stateless persons or stateless individuals. So, like myself, I would be considered a stateless person because although you may be born in a refugee camp in a in a country, uh, you can't identify that as your nationality or your country. I did not know that. Wow. Um, so, Paja, does Shang's story resonate with you? What's similar or different? And tell us about your own experience. Yeah, so what's similar is that I was also born in a refugee camp. I was actually born in Chien Kham, which is northern Thailand in the Payao district. Uh, my family and I resettled in, Fox, in the Fox cities when I was only two years old. So that means I was a baby when I was in the refugee camps. We actually came in the third wave. So we arrived in the United States in 1995. The difference um, is that my family actually didn't want to come to the United States. Mm. They wanted to stay in the refugee camps, stay in the, like, the terrain that was most familiar to them and their lifestyle. And the only reason why we chose to resettle here is because I got really sick and the doctors were like, you have to go to the United States if you want your daughter to survive with the medical care that we have here. And so that's what really influenced my parents to uproot their life and come here. Yeah, that's a big decision, right? To leave everything that you know and your family, your friends, what you're comfortable with to go somewhere where you don't even know what it's going to be like. Thanks for sharing that. So people have been drawing parallels between um, what happened to the Hmong people and what is happening to Afghanis in Afghanistan. From your perspectives, what is similar? What's different? And, and why are people drawing those parallels? Um, you know, I would say there's there's definitely a lot of parallels in the sense that with the Middle East War, we knew that the Afghanistans were potentially part of it, but we didn't know to what extent until recently in August when uh, the current administration said the U.S. government or that the U.S. would be you know withdrawing troops and would be done. I think that's when it really came to the surface about the involvement that the Afghanistans really had um, in partnership with the U.S. government, um, and that that really is similar to the Vietnam War as well <clears throat> in terms of the among the Hmong population and our involvement with the war. And so it really is was kept secret, but also how the war ended. Right, it ended so abruptly without really any protective measures for the um, Afghanistans or for the Hmong individuals. And so that really leaves a sense of abandonment in where is our um, sovereignty in this or where, you know, where is our, our um, where really is, you know, our, our partnership in this, you know, especially with Afghanistan being the longest war in history that we've had. Mm -hmm. I think for me, I see that um, some of their needs or barriers when they arrive in the United States may be similar. Of course, every culture has their own beliefs and values, so that may be different, but I think in terms of basic needs and just readjusting to life here, I could see that being very similar to the Hmong refugees. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit more about that. What were some of those barriers or challenges that you and your families faced as you came to Northeast Wisconsin and, and had to make it a home? So I think my parents had different challenges from me. Like I said, I was a refugee child. I came here when I was young. So I went through different things that my parents who came here as adults went through. So when it, after speaking to my parents and knowing more about their story, I know that for my parents, they struggled with the language. They didn't speak English at all. And one thing that they always talk about is how hard it is to learn to drive here in the United States. 
they said that the only way to get to places is to drive and to drive you need to learn and get your driver's license and that was a struggle in itself also like things like finding affordable housing how to find a job how to make money how to improve their literacy including financial literacy the basic needs to make a living in a life here in the United States were most of their struggles for me though as a refugee child I think my challenges were more related to identity and belonging and I don't know if you can relate to that Shang for me, it was like, what does it mean to be Hmong? What does it mean to be American? I struggled to navigate my dual identity and how to stay connected with my cultural roots, but then also pursue uncharted opportunities here in the United States and also intake Western philosophies. And so I definitely wish I had more assistance with that growing up. Yeah, for sure. I think you you talked about, you know, the language barriers, Paja, and what I, one of my earliest memories is related to language barriers and really being the caretaker for my parents because of those language barriers. So being, you know, six, seven, eight years old and translating for your parents or my parents at medical appointments or at the grocery stores, I mean, anywhere that you needed to go on in public. Um, and so I, I remember that very clearly of kind of you know, being forced into that caretaker role so that the nuclear family could function, right? And so I think, um, you know, as we think about the, you know, the new refugees that are coming as well is Dari as their primary language and not having a lot of interpreters or individuals who speak that language. And what, a, what is that barrier going to create for this new wave of refugees? I can relate to that because as a child, I was also young when I was learning to navigate systems with my parents. So like while children were learning to play together, having sleepovers, I was having to help my parents find affordable housing, um, help them study with their citizenship tests. Well, at the moment, I saw it as a burden or annoyance. But in hindsight, those were some skills, important skills that I developed early on. And I feel like I'm a lot more resourceful because of it now. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, you, you know, you talk about like the, the biculturalism or dual identity as a young child growing up and, and seeing or recognizing the differences in, you know, our family's lifestyles compared to perhaps our, you know, peers that are from the white majority's lifestyle and being almost angry about it at that point, because one, we grew up in extreme poverty. And so there was no such thing as having your own bedroom, right? Or um, the luxury of, you know, Christmas or toys or all these things and uh, being really upset about it. But then now that I'm an adult and actually really appreciating those, you know, those opportunities to, you know, grow up and learn about what, what it truly is like for um, individuals who are immigrants here that have some of these you know, barriers and challenges. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned growing up in extreme poverty, and I know that that has to do with, you know, coming here and, 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 and having those barriers to be able to thrive. And I think sometimes that's hard for people to understand about uh, refugees and, and refugee assistance, because it might seem like, oh, these folks come here and we give them all this assistance and they should be fine. <laughs> and in reality, that's, that's not the case. And um, either of you, could you say a little bit more about, you know, what kind of assistance did Hmong refugees receive from either from the federal government or, or from the community? And and where did it fall short? What really was the support and what didn't we support? I can't recall, you know, any assistance from the federal government or the local government. You know, perhaps I was too young at that point. I, I do know that we were sponsored by a Catholic church when we first came to the United States. And I think what really helped my family outside of the financial um, support was actually religion, right? So Christianity, because my parents were converted pretty early on. And so they were a pretty large influence and impact on, on my family growing up. Uh, missionaries coming just to you know play with the kids or going to church and finally finding some way of healing. Um, 
was particularly helpful in, in my family's situation. Mm -hmm. uh, I think my parents, they received a lot of assistance when we were in poverty because we qualified for food share. We qualified for affordable housing. So we were living in Section 8 homes for 12 years until we finally built our own home through the Habitat for Humanity program. So like, I feel like we received assistance like through state programs, but also through local programs like Habitat for Humanity, Salvation Army. They helped us with our holiday gatherings. They gave us gifts and toys. The only thing I'd say like my parents didn't receive as much assistance on was like long-term, like after you find a job, how do you sustain a job? When you find a job and you're starting to make money, how do you invest your money? How do you plan for your retirement? So the financial literacy aspect, my parents had no idea about and they didn't even begin saving for the retirement until they were in their 40s, you know, things like that. I know that they wish they knew that earlier on. Thank you both so much for sharing your experiences so openly. We're going to take a break and then a little auditory field trip to Longcheng Marketplace to learn about the recent Hmong Children's New Year celebration. And then we'll be back with part two of our conversation with Shang and Paja. The Community Foundation for the Fox Valley Region is a great resource for making a local impact while simplifying your charitable giving through a tax-deductible charitable fund. Perhaps you're passionate about certain organizations or want to support causes such as education or pets at the animal shelter, or you're interested in addressing the greatest needs of the community. When you partner with us, we'll share our local knowledge so that you can make a difference today and always. Learn more at cffoxvalley.org. I'm here at the Longcheng Marketplace for the Children's Hmong New Year, and right now they're doing an activity with the children playing a traditional ball game. People are wearing traditional Hmong dresses and headdresses and vests. Longcheng Marketplace on South Law Street in Appleton is just this amazing space full of among owned retail businesses including a grocery store several boutiques selling jewelry clothes you name it it's here there's a fish pet store and then in the back there are delicious restaurants so the moment that you walk in you just smell delicious things <laughs> and you're drawn to walk through the shops and um, go get a bite to eat um, it's a really wonderful place as well because it is adjacent to a large event space, so you could have weddings, fundraisers. It's been around for several years, and it's a really critical place for the Hmong community, but for our whole community as well. It's, it's a very open and welcoming space. Okay. Can you say your name for me? I'm Pania Tao. And you organize the event today. Can you tell me about the event today? So this event has the purpose of teaching about our own culture, such as about our embroidery, about our clothing, about our lives back as children in the refugee camps where we didn't have much to play with regarding toys. So we used rubber bands, racks, sticks, whatever we could find. And we also taught home alphabets to try to uh, keep our language alive so that the kids can know about our alphabets, about their language. 
We also had our pageantry groups from all across Wisconsin that came to help volunteer with each station to teach our culture to be good role models for the younger kids so that they will be involved in their community in the future. Carolyn, that Hmong celebration at Longchang sounded like a lot of fun. Yes, and interestingly, this marketplace, Longchang, is named after the biggest Hmong city in Laos before 1975 and also the military base of General Vang Pao and the CIA. In fact, it was once regarded as the most secret spot on earth. And it's a great example of how even after 40 years after the initial Hmong resettlement, elements of the refugee experience and of Hmong people's homeland are still central to their lives every day. Our long chain marketplace in Appleton should not be a best kept secret because it's such a wonderful place. Um, and it's a great example of the assets Hmong people have shared with our community, including food, business, art, and culture. And if you've never been there, you might want to drop by. We're going to put a link in our program notes today so you can explore. Well, let's get back to part two of our interview with Shang Li Yang and Paja Yang. So we've been talking quite a bit about some of those barriers and challenges, but I also want to talk about the positives too and the assets of our Hmong community members and what Hmong people have brought to this community. What are your thoughts on that? We'll start with you, Paja. Sure. So I have so much respect for the Hmong talent within my Hmong community. I feel like we're very creative and ambitious individuals. There's so much beauty and detail in the art and the music we create. Like if you look at our Hmong clothes and our textiles, you know, that's a piece of us. Those things tell our stories. And I think that's something that I really pride myself in. And given our positions as refugees, we add another layer of compassion and perspective in the things that we do. And I feel like that enriches communities. I also think that considering the hardships that we've endured throughout our history, we're quite resilient people. I'm so proud of my parents for how much they have accomplished and the life that they have created for my siblings and me with the little amount that they had when they first arrived here. Thank you. Yeah. Shane, what do you think? You know, I think there are a couple of pieces, you know, when you think, when we think about the Hmong culture in itself, it's a very collective culture. And that's one piece of identity that I hope I, you know, I, I really value. And I hope that I can, you know, continue that on with my future children or generations the identity of collectivism just makes you feel like you belong somewhere. Like even if you had nothing, um, you're still not poor. I recall growing up, you know, even though we were in poverty, uh, I was never hungry. You know, we always had clothes. We never were starving. I mean, that was really the identity of collectivism with, you know, sharing things with our neighbors who were also from the Hmong background as well. Um, we think about the Hmong community or the Hmong population in general, general, we haven't been here that long, but when you look at the, you know, the economic um, contributions that we've really had to the community and to the country, um, there's been a lot of growth in um, our resilience and how we contribute to the various disciplines and fields. Let's talk about how welcoming or not so welcoming our community has been to the Hmong people. Let's start with you, Shane. I I remember growing up and it was very obvious through the energy that Hmong people were not very welcomed here. You know, I recall one one situation in particular being at the grocery store with my father, and you know, at this time we were we were still on, on welfare. Um, and food stamps was still in that paper form, right? It's, <laughs> and my dad had not having enough money, 
for a, a roll of paper towel because you didn't have enough cash, right? And the person, you know, the the cashier just talking so rudely to him and she just kept saying does this look like food to you does this look like food to you because he was he didn't know that he couldn't pay for the paper towels with you know food stamps money and so it was very evident uh, and obvious at that time that the Hmong people were not welcome here and there there really was no place here for us I think that perspective has shifted a little bit I think we made some progress but at the same time I think that people are just more uh, passive about racism and oppression about, you know, their, you know, their personal feelings about why Hmong people are here in the first place. Um, so I think, you know, we made some progress, but people also are just a little bit more passive about it. I think my parents were the passive people <laughs> because like for them, I keep probing, like, how was your experience here when you first landed in the United States? You know, things must've been different, scary for you, but the things that they would always say to me and my siblings were, Appleton in particular was a very welcoming and generous community. And I know that's not the case for everyone, but for my parents, they appreciated the community's help when they first arrived here. And now as I'm older, I look back and I do see that there were resources out there for us and there are resources today. However, I don't want us to get too comfortable in the ways that we do things. I don't want us to stop learning. And sometimes we're actually creating barriers with our current practices and our current systems in place barriers to access for families. And so I hope that we continue to learn, reflect, and change as needed throughout time. Thanks for sharing your experiences. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention that, you know, another aspect recently, especially since the onset of COVID-19, has been this increase in incidents of hate violence or hate speech against Asian Americans, including Hmong people. Um, Has that affected either of you or your families locally? I think knowing that um, increased um, AAPI hate crimes are are, are on the rise, um, that creates another layer of barriers, right? It's about psychological safety. And when you're constantly seen in the media or hearing from your own friends or family members about how things happen to them, it does create a sense of, you know, psychological fear about, you know, what if that was me or, or am I really safe here? Am I really safe in public? based on the color of my skin or based on what my culture, what I look like on the surface. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think it's that psychological fear that is instilled in us now, unfortunately, after the events. For my parents, if I may give share a personal example, my wedding was this summer and it was an outdoor wedding. And my dad called me and he was like, I just want to let you know that I want to be at your wedding, but I'm very scared. It's a public wedding. It's outdoors. Anybody can attend and we don't feel safe. And he was like, is there any way we can do it indoor where it's closed doors, have um, people there who could um, provide protection while we are engaged in the wedding ceremonies, you know? And that just made me so sad because it was supposed to be a special moment, but then with everything going on, they were so scared, not because they don't want to be there. They're just aware of, hyper aware of things that are happening around in our community now. And so I'm sure if my parents are feeling it, other folks have that fear inside their mind as well as they go out in public spaces. That makes me sad too, Paja. I appreciate your vulnerability in sharing that and people should feel safe and their families should feel safe at, at something like a wedding. So it's it's been 40 years now after that initial Hmong resettlement. Um, and we know there've been many waves since then. What should we be reflecting on and learning from as a community as we prepare to welcome new refugees from Afghanistan? 
You know, I think that as we reflect back on the Hmong refugees' experiences and new newcomers, one thing that we can really appreciate is the journey, right? Mental health symptoms um, do evolve as a as a result of PTSD or you know people's experiences, and how do how do we help people through that um, or their experiences through learning and and helping them you know, right off the bat versus waiting till forty years later. Um, just understanding the beauty of people's journey um, and what does that do for healing in itself? Yeah, I agree. I think that it's just making sure that we're prepared, that we have enough resources, we have enough translators to help folks transition and ensure that the resources in place are for the long term and not only for this temporary period. So as we wrap up our time together, I want to ask, what can we as listeners to this podcast do to welcome our newcomer neighbors? We'll start with you, Paja. I think it's pretty simple is to be kind, have compassion and be humble, be willing to be wrong, be willing to learn and embrace the changes that are happening in our community. It's inevitably going to diversify and we have to be willing to adapt. Absolutely. I would agree with you, Padra, 100% on that, you know, practicing some humility. The refugees that are coming have gone through or have experienced tremendous war and trauma. And I think the last thing that we as a community really need to do is be surprised or shocked by them as well. The best thing we can do despite language barriers or cultural cultural differences is invite them into our space, right? Um, that That is human linguistics. We can be inviting, we can be human, we can be kind um, and not look the same or speak the same language. Can I just add, I just learned the other day from my dad that when they resettled here, they were given a bag that told everybody they were new refugees here. Let's not do that. <laughs> Let's be more than that. Let's be better than our past and our history that we've had here. And so I'm really excited and I hope that we all can come together to help. Yeah, we do too at the foundation. We hope that we've grown as a community and our ability to be welcoming, but also we know um, there's a lot we still need to learn. And I just love what you both said, approaching it with humility and remembering that we're all humans and we all want similar things. We all want to take care of our families and have a place to live and succeed in our lives and thrive. And, you know, we have a great opportunity to help some folks do that who, you know, gave a lot um, in their experience um, and survived a lot to get here. So, well, I'm deeply grateful for the conversation that we've had today and um, just have so much admiration and respect for both of you and um, who you are as people, uh, the work that you do in the community. Just thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thank you for inviting me and it's a pleasure to be here. Well, that's all the time we have for this episode of Voices from the Valley. Thank you for listening, and please check out our program notes for more information and links. You can subscribe to this podcast and get all of our episodes delivered to you on demand. Just go to our website, cffoxvalley.org. Look for the podcast link on our homepage, click on Podcasts, and get Voices from the Valley delivered to your computer or smart device. We'll see you next time on Voices from the Valley, a podcast of the Community Foundation for the Fox Valley Region.